Our epistle lesson is found in Colossians 1. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we confess our need. We acknowledge that we are in need of your instruction. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of your forgiveness. All of it this morning. So we pray with the psalmist. Make us to know your way, Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us this morning. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever tried to learn something new? Maybe it was a new art. Maybe it was a new sport. Maybe it was a new skill or a new language of sorts. What was necessary for you to become fluent in that art or that skill, or that language. Many years ago, I had the privilege of learning a new art, the art of language. As a seminary student in St. Louis, I had to learn Greek and Hebrew. And the first summer I was there, they throw you into this summer intensive that they, they have uh, kindly or, uh, or morbidly termed summer Greek. And you have to learn the Greek language, the Greek alphabet, the Greek terms, verbs, so on and so forth throughout the summer. Now, I had a really wonderful professor. He was delightful. Uh, he was kind and gracious, and he was brilliant. He would write Greek up on the board with all of its squiggly, weird-looking letters and its accent marks and breathing marks, so on and so forth. And he would divide up the words, the verbs, into person and tense and voice and mood, if anybody knows what any of those things are. And he would give us the English equivalent. I was in awe. It was astonishing how brilliant this man was. Now, I wanted to know how he got to that level because I wanted to get to that level, right? I wanted to be that smart. That'd be awesome. So I got up the courage one day, and, and I asked him after class, Jimmy, how are you so fluent in Greek? And he looked at me, and he said, well, John, I'm really not fluent. He kind of chuckled at me, and I'm not fluent in Greek. To be truly fluent is to not need to translate it in order to understand it. Even in my head, I have to continue to translate it into English before I truly understand what it means. To be fluent is to make it second nature. It's to, and to do that, it takes about 15 years of daily reading. So I was like, well, I'm not going there. <laughs> to become fluent in any skill, in any skill or any art, is to make it second nature. It's not to have to translate it, but to simply live it. And that takes time. But at the very beginning, more than time, 
it takes a foundational knowledge, an understanding of the working of the art or the language, foundational knowledge of the skill in order to master it later. And if you don't have that foundational understanding, it's easy to misuse your new skill, to be misguided, to misunderstand. And this is similar to where the Colossian Christians find themselves in the book of Colossians. It's a young, fledgling church full of young Christians who've lived their entire lives under the auspices of the Roman Empire, steeped in a culture and tradition contrary to their new faith. Does that sound normal? Does that sound similar to the life that you and I live? Steeped in a culture and steeped in a society that is contrary to faith. They've been influenced by everything from pagan pluralism to Jewish monotheism, everything in between and a mixture of it all. And by God's grace, they've believed the word of truth. They've believed the gospel of Jesus. And they find themselves at the dawn of a new life with God. But it's at that very beginning, that beginning of a new life with God, that they're at their most vulnerable to being misguided and misdirected. And Paul's addressing that this in this passage, and he will in the rest of Colossians. That's why he's praying. He's praying for them to have the knowledge of God's will because foundational to life with God is a knowledge of God's will. But this isn't just a, it's not a mere intellectual assent. It isn't less than intellectual, but it is more. It's, a, it's an intimate knowledge. The kind of knowledge that Paul prays for is so deeply ingrained into your life that it becomes second nature. And you become fluent in the art of living with God. That's what he's praying for, for the Colossians and for you and for me. So this morning we're going to see four things about this knowledge of God's will. We're going to see its source, then the nature, the purpose, and lastly we'll look at the scope of this knowledge. So first at the beginning of the request, we see the source of the knowledge of God's will. Paul prays that he and, uh, he prays, uh, uh, he and Timothy are praying, asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, this is a really important distinction to make at the very beginning of the request, that it's God who fills us with the knowledge of his will. God is the filler. God is the giver. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to discover God's will, as cool as that would be. That'd be awesome. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage. We don't have to read five Christian books in order to discover God's will, to uncover it. As much as we love books, they're wonderful. We can encourage and affirm them. God's not elusive. He's not Winnie the Pooh's heffalump. He's revealed himself to us. He's given himself and his will to us in his scriptures. He's revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus, as Hebrews says... He has spoken in these last days in Jesus. And he's given a revelation of his will here in his scriptures. He's not elusive. 
Just as King Solomon asked God for wisdom and God granted it, so you and I are first and foremost recipients of God's revelation. We're passive actors in this portion of the story. And we discover God as he shows himself to us in his scriptures. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well, of course, John, if we're looking for God's will, we have to go to God. Of course God is the one who fills us. But let's be clear, that's not how we live. And it's certainly not the world that we are steeped in. It's not the world that the Colossians were steeped in. From day one, you and I are taught and trained to believe that we are in charge. That we are the judge of right and wrong. That we are the author of our place in the world. That we can be or do whatever we want to be or do. Because we are the source of what is good and right and true. Recently, our family's been watching uh, the Princess Diaries movies. Y'all can always count on me for a good movie illustration, right? I've been watching the Princess Diary movies, and in the second movie, Princess Mia is planning to become Queen of Genovia. And in that, we, in that movie, we see a struggle, a back and forth, a tug. The struggle is between who everyone expects Mia to be as queen and who Mia wants herself to be as queen. Is she going to be the traditional queen that her grandmother is? Or is she going to blaze her own path and bring Genovia into the 21st century? And as 21st century Americans, we're like, yes, be the queen you want to be. Do what you want to do. Be your own author. And I find myself tugging that way because that's what I want. Not to be queen of Genovia. (laughs) That came out wrong. Uh, I want to be author, right? I want to be in charge. I want to be the source of what's right and wrong. Rather than looking to God to know his will, we seek to impose our will on God. That's the human predicament. It's what got us in trouble in the first place. And it's the reason why Paul prays for God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. The Colossians have faith. They love one another. They have hope. And now Paul prays that they would build on a foundation of a life that's oriented to God as the source, as the authority of what's good and right and true as he's revealed himself in his scriptures and in his son. He is the source. As our psalmist says this morning, we too can pray, make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. So with the psalmist, we look to God as the source of his will as the director of our lives. We look to him in faith to supply what we lack, trusting him to do it. So along with the source, we see the nature of this knowledge. Paul prays that they would be filled with knowledge with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the nature is spiritual. But what do you think about when you hear the word spiritual? Sometimes we think, of course, the spirit, like the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes we think of the immaterial, that which is otherworldly, that doesn't belong here. That's often how the Colossians might have thought about it. There was the physical and the spiritual. There was the material and the immaterial. But when Paul uses these these terms, he doesn't mean simply otherworldly. 
he uses this phrase to allude to some Old Testament passages where these words are used, particularly Exodus 31 and 35, and then in 1 Kings 7. In each of these passages, God fills particular men with spiritual wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and skill in order to build the tabernacle and the temple, the theological, ethical, and visceral center of life with God in God's people. They were skilled at building a life with God. So when we talk about the nature of this wisdom being spiritual wisdom and understanding, the nature of this knowledge being spiritual, we're not saying it's theoretical. We're not saying that it's philosophical or immaterial. It's not simply otherworldly, but rather it's theological. It's oriented to God. It's ethical and it's moral, knowing what's right and wrong as revealed by God. And it's visceral and it's practical, taking our life with God, knowing what's right and what's wrong, and applying it to our everyday life. This week I was spending some time with a friend And we were talking about our families and our struggles as dads and as husbands. And my friend began to reflect uh, on on the spiritual aspects that were going on in our kids. And also the spiritual aspects that were going on in us as we were responding to our family. And it was in that simple, quick conversation that I was challenged not simply to look at my kids as disobedient or obedient, which they can be both sometimes more than the other. Not to interpret myself as, uh, as, joy, as joyful or as angry, but I was challenged to live a more robust spiritual life, to, to interpret what's going on in our family, in me and in my kids, in terms of our life before the face of God. Skillfully orienting our lives, building it around God the source and the authority of his will. One commentator describes Paul using this term spiritual to refer to the Colossians building their ethical lives skillfully around the things of God. And that's how we're to understand the nature of this knowledge. It's not simply otherworldly. It's otherworldly for this world. For you and I to build our lives skillfully around God, oriented to God and the things of God. That's the nature. It's trusting the source and to skillfully build our lives. And that leads us then to the purpose of the knowledge of God's will. Paul prays that they would be filled with this knowledge, as verse 10 says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So the purpose of knowing God's will is that we would do God's will. So that you would walk. So that you would do something. Sometimes we wonder, what's God's will for my life? How do, I, how do I live in that will? Those are good questions. They're right for us to be asking. But oftentimes we tend to overcomplicate it. Losing the forest through the trees. Because here Paul tells us what it means to know and to do God's will. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And notice that he makes a slight shift in the person that he's referencing. Earlier in verse 9, he said, 
He was asking that he would fill him with his will. That is God the Father. Would God the Father fill them with the knowledge of his will? And now he says, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, meaning Jesus. Paul is now talking about Jesus. He uses this phrase, walking in a manner worthy. And in other places in Paul's writing, we understand this phrase to mean a life that is fitting to the Lord or suitable to him. So to do God's will is to live fitting, suitable, or reflecting the life of Jesus. Y'all seen Parent Trap? You got two movie illustrations tonight, this morning. Parent Trap, it's, it's cute and hilarious. We watched it last night and my kids were howling. Like y'all know like the, the high-pitched girl squeals, high-pitched girl laughter, uh, I have two of those. They were laughing, and this, but this movie is about two twin sisters who've lived their entire 11 years apart from one another. One in California with dad, the other in London with mom. And they meet for the first time at, a, at an eight-week all-girls summer camp where they discover their sisters. Like, they look the same. Of course they're sisters. Why did it take them long, a, a while to figure that out? And they hatched this plan to switch places with each other so that they could spend time with a parent that they've never met before. And then maybe reunite mom and dad. But in order to pull off the switch, they had to learn how to live as the other person. So what did they do? They spent the rest of the eight weeks, it was probably like seven, seven and a half weeks, memorizing pictures and names of family members and friends. They spent those weeks studying the layout of their respective homes, learning to speak like each other. Because you can imagine a girl from Northern California and London don't say the same things in the same way. So they're having to live, they're having to learn to live like each other. One even cut her hair and pierced her ears so that she would look like her sister. They had to become like one another in order to live like one another. That's a bit of what it's like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's to become like him, more and more conformed to his image. You become a student of Jesus. You sit at his feet. You learn from him, studying his ways. And then you live life like him. And just like these sisters who didn't get it right, you and I aren't going to get it right. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. We're going to stumble. We're not going to get it perfect. But when you, when you learn the purpose of the knowledge of God's will in Jesus, you also learn the knowledge of God's grace in Jesus. You recognize that he is a God full of mercy that he is full of steadfast love and forgiveness in this Jesus that you are trying to be like. He is full of it. He is full of grace and forgiveness. You recognize that when your sin abounds, God grace abounds all the more. You recognize that when you are weak, God proves himself strong in Jesus. So yes, you try to live like him, but you also recognize you're not going to get it right. You're going to fail. But God's grace still abounds. 
to the purpose of this knowledge is to live more like Jesus, but never apart from the grace of God offered in Jesus. And then lastly, we see the scope of this knowledge. We see the scope of the knowledge of God's will. Paul prays that their lives would be fully pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. With these excessive terms, Paul indicates the scope is every facet, every facet of life under the sun. This is particularly challenging for us because it's far more comfortable to give Jesus a portion of our life. It's far more comfortable to reflect Jesus' conservative theology or his wholesome family values. It's really comfortable to study Jesus' use of money or his understanding of sexuality. It's far more comfortable to reflect his care for the poor and his emphasis on mission. But to take it all, to give all of me, that's uncomfortable. We don't like it. That's the challenge. But Jesus is not content with just portions of you. He's not content with just a slice of the pie. He wants the whole thing because he loves you that much. He wants the whole thing because he came and he died and he resurrected and he sits at God's right hand ruling over the whole world because he wants all of you, every facet of your life under the sun. Perhaps you've heard this illustration from C.S. Lewis uh, before. He first said it in a radio address and then in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace because he intends to live in it himself. See, that's the scope. It's all facets of your life. You think Jesus is going to come in and just fix a, tweak a a few things here and there. He's not content with that because he comes to live in you himself by his spirit. He comes to make you his own. And he wants to transform all of you. All of you. Because he loves you that much. Jesus intends to make you more like himself. More fully human. More fully alive. More fully pleasing to God in all aspects of your life. Again, that doesn't mean perfection. But it does mean progress. And that progress isn't a linear line. Right? As we know it from experience and from the Bible, that, that line's not linear. It's up and down, sideways, backwards and forwards. It's convoluted and complicated. Sometimes you give more, sometimes you give less. Sometimes you laugh and sometimes you cry. Sometimes you're happy and sometimes it hurts. But in all of it, Jesus is making you new. All of you. All aspects of you, because that's its scope. 
So this morning we've seen the source, the nature, the purpose, and the scope of the knowledge of God's will. And by imparting this knowledge in Jesus, God lays a foundation in you on which to build your entire life with him. Just as the Colossians needed God to guide them through the revelation of himself, so you and I, we also need God to guide us to lay that foundation so that we could build our whole lives on him. Because he's come to make you new. He's come to make me new. And we can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Let's ask him for his help. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you sent your son Jesus to make all things new, to live the life that we should have lived but couldn't, to die the death that we deserved, and to defeat death by raising to life. And raising us to new life in himself by your spirit. God, would you continue to be gracious to us this morning. Empower us to shape our lives around Jesus. To study his life. To know how he would respond. Building our lives around him and on him. Would you conform us more and more to his image as we look to you in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.